All right. Um, hope you can see everything there on the board. The reason why we're doing this is this chart, if we tried to print it out, is supposed to be about 36 feet long. Uh, but what we're going to do is just scroll through it tonight. And uh, take your Bibles, if you would, and let's go to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians chapter 4. And there are many, many references in the Bible to time. And uh, what we're wanting to do tonight is have a little fun, but to also try to visualize the entire history that the Bible records. Uh, most of us have read through the book of Genesis and we read all of those ages, but uh, a lot of times we just lose the context of what was going on. And if you need to move up a little bit so you can see that easier, feel free to, uh, to do so as we get started. But Genesis chapter 4 and verse 4 says, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So that's Galatians chapter 4. And the time element in the Bible is one of the most uh, discussed and argued about uh, of all the Bible. People come up with Genesis. Now, how in the world did Adam live 930 years and Tonight, we're not going to uh, even attempt to answer any of those questions. Uh, we'll just simply uh, end the discussion with saying, I'd rather trust the character of God and what's printed in his word than anyone or anything else. And so when the Bible says that Adam did live 930 years, we're just going to believe uh, what the Bible said. And as we come down here, you're going to find out that these first Several years here, I mean, first several millennium, there we go, that's where I wanted it, is if we go right according to the Bible and take the dates, we have a date of creation about 4004 B.C. or 4,000 years before Christ. Our year today is 2011. That puts us about 2,000 uh, years after the time of Christ, we're looking at roughly 6,000 years of human history to this point. Now, as we look at the history that was recorded in the book of Genesis, we let's see if I can stretch this out. We have Adam, that top line, goes the whole way into the life of of Lamech here, Adam is alive uh, several hundred years into the life of Lamech. So as we come all the way down here, and Lamech and Methuselah actually would have died about the same time just as the flood came. So we see that Noah, who would have given us the effort of the flood, only had to go back Two generations. He could talk to his father and his grandfather who had the opportunity to personally talk to Adam about the Garden of Eden. Now, the reason why we're doing this is because we want to understand the reason why there was no need for a written word is because 
we're only at this point through the first six chapters of Genesis and we've already covered 1,200 years of history and yet we can have a perfect recording of that and we're, let's see, we're just going to slide this out a little further here and now we have the life of Noah and we're going to, let's see here, let's just slide this down a little bit and we're going to get into the flood at about 28, 2900 BC. We have uh, the life of Noah here. And again, we're going to have a few pivotal people. We have Methuselah, who is still alive here right up until the flood begins. And we're just going to scoot back here. And see, Methuselah was a contemporary of Adam for several hundred years. And so we have a complete transition of all the knowledge there of the Bible could have easily been handed down from one generation to another all the way through Noah. The next pivotal person we're going to run into is going to be the person Shem. Now Shem is going to be over a hundred years old when the flood begins. And let's see if we can tilt this down just a little bit. And Shem, if we follow this line down, is actually overlapping the, uh, the life of Isaac by about 70 years. And so as we're looking at Bible history... The Bible does not uh, specifically tell us that Shem and Abraham and Isaac had conversations, but the point that we're trying to make here is that uh, Shem, who actually rode on the ark during the flood, could have verbally spoken to Abraham and even his son Isaac and given him firsthand accounts of what happened in the flood. And this entire time period here, we, we are now coming down into the 2000s. Remember, we started out at about 4000 B.C. We get down to the time of Abraham, and we're right about 2000 B.C. The time between creation and the life of Abraham is roughly the amount of time between the life of Christ and where we live today. Now, one thing that we, we can't go all the way, and I, I hope I'm not boring you too much with this, but we believe in understanding the Bible dispensationally. Now, if you uh, Google that term and look up on the Internet, you're going to find a lot of really weird stuff, so I don't recommend that you do that. Uh, but there are some good books if you're interested in uh, dispensationalism, and we've actually spent um, uh, several Thursday nights, and we will take at least one Thursday night before we start the book of Revelation and just review the dispensations again. 
Dispensationalism, if, if you want my definition of it, is only a method of Bible study. If you use it for anything more than that, you're going to get yourself into an awful lot of trouble. It is a simple way to understand the Bible literally and coherently all the way through. And let me just go back on our timeline here. We have from Adam to sin, we call the dispensation of innocence. Because Adam and Eve were created not as, as we are born. We are born in the image of Adam. They were created in the image of God. They had perfect relationship with God and yet they chose to sin. Things changed when they sinned. Things were different. God, of course, was ultimately prepared and God instituted animal sacrifice. He killed those lambs and made coats of coverings of skin for Adam and for his wife Eve to cover the nakedness of their sin. And then we have Cain and Abel. Cain brought the sacrifice of the works of his hands, the root of all false religion. It was Abel that brought the blood of the lamb, and God accepted Abel's offering, rejected Cain's, but man became worse and worse. And we get up to the time of the flood when God judged the entire world and only uh, Noah and his family, as Noah and his family got off the ark. God instituted what we now know as human government. He said that man was to avenge for the blood of the shedding of man. If you want to know what government is about, study dispensationalism. The job of government is to ensure justice. No individual has the right to take another individual's life, but government in the function of offering justice does. And so we come down through uh, after the flood and God chooses a man named Abraham. Now we're going to start getting into the more, uh, the part of the Bible that we're just a little more familiar with. At this point, we're only to Genesis chapter 12. But let's get our time period here. Again, we've come through almost 2,000 years of history. We have Abraham... Isaac, Jacob, Jacob goes down into the land of Egypt. They're in the land of Egypt, 430 years. That's what this, um, no, not what that one is. There we go. They come out of the land of Egypt with Moses, and God gives his law on Mount Sinai. Things changed when God gave the law. There were now 613 commandments that had to be memorized, understood, and abided by as we move through. Now God gives a written word. We're down in the 1500 area right now. And we now have the written Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy uh, this man puts Job here in 1800. Uh, no one knows when Job lived. Uh, he could have lived any time from more than likely after the flood 
which would be about 2200 all the way up to a contemporary with Abraham or even sooner, uh, newer than that, which is what this man that developed this chart has done. Uh, I have tried to draw charts and they turn out abysmal, so I'm borrowing somebody else's tonight. I cannot print copies for this. I wish I could, but it would cost uh, $13 per copy if we were doing this the right way and didn't cheat and, on the copyright. And so uh, I bought one copy, put it here, and we'll try to review all of this as they come out of the land of Egypt. We now have the book of Joshua here, the events that happened in the book of Joshua, the times of the judges, Ruth was in the times of the judges. And we now come up about 1000 AD, I mean 1000 BC, I'm sorry, before Christ. And we're going to come to another one of those pivotal personages, and that is the person of David. He was responsible for 73 of our Psalms that he assigned and probably several others uh, including Psalm 119, which are not signed. We have the history of the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, which will stretch from about 1000 A.D. all the way up, and let's see if we can get this all on one screen here, about 600 B.C. This is a period of a little over 400 years. At 600 Nebuchadnezzar's armies come, destroy the city of Jerusalem. We have the Babylonian captivity, yet from the time of Moses until the time of John the Baptist, we are operating as far as what we call under the law. God's plan involves time, but to relegate God's plan to just simply a time clock is to really misunderstand the scriptures and miss the main point. Everything that happened in the law, according to the book of Galatians, was to be our schoolmaster to teach us about Jesus. All the things that were done in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And so we come up here to the time of Daniel. We have all of our minor prophets grouped right in here. And... Uh, now we're moving into the end of the Old Testament. We have Esther, Nehemiah, and Ezra. The, uh, at the end of the Babylonian Empire, the Persians take over. Cyrus gives the command to rebuild the Bible. Um, I can't edit the uh, thing very well. Uh, one of the great historical lies, we'll just put this, point this out while we do it. How many people know what that LXX stands for there? Any of our Bible scholars remember that? Yes, yeah, the Septuagint. Uh, that is one of the great lies of history. Jewish scholars never translated the Old Testament into Greek. They learned Hebrew. Though there were some freaks, I'm sure, that did try to pervert the scriptures and all of that. Um, there is not a book that anyone could pick up and actually call a Greek translation of the New Testament until after 400 A.D. And uh, so 
whenever you see someone quoting the Septuagint, this is just a little thing to stick in your hat, what they're trying to do is they're trying to impress you with their scholarship. Don't believe them. The Septuagint did not exist. There was no such book that any person could pick up in the days of Jesus Christ or any time before that was a Greek translation uh, of the entire Old Testament just like we have of our Bible today. Did not exist. Uh, for those that are interested, it's this intertestamental period when the books of the Pseudepigrapha and the Apocrypha were written. We now come down to somewhere between 4 uh, B.C. and 0, uh, the year 1 or 2. In that time period, Jesus was born. And now we have the books of the New Testament. The canon of the scriptures were closed. And now when you hear the word canon... What it's talking about is the standard set of the books of the Bible. Now, the books of the Bible, the Bible was complete. The first Latin Bibles uh, were in print and being used as early as 150 A.D. They contained the same books that your King James Bible has today. The Syrian Bibles were about that same time period, maybe even a little earlier. And these would have been the Bibles of the Armenian Church, and what is now called the Armenian Church. And we come up here about 105 A.D. The Bible was finished. Now, what's going to happen is the historians are going to come in and they're going to try to tell us that the Bible... Where, where is it? There we go. There we go. The Bible was not complete until the councils of Rome recognized it. And this just simply is not true. Uh, if you've uh, read, been through our discipleship, we proved beyond any shadow of a doubt that this quote-unquote council of Jerusalem was not a church council at all. It didn't come up with any new doctrine. It just confirmed what was already there. And you're going to find that many of these councils, the earliest ones, did not come up with new doctrine or did not do anything except um, approve of the doctrine that was all ready there. So now we're going to look at the Roman Empire period here and I want you just to look at see how uh, can you see that name right there the Donatist they were listed here among many other heretics and we'll come over here where's my if you can see that the Monatist where I'm highlighting there the monetists, from what we have in history, they had some strange little beliefs, but their main core of belief was what we would have to historically define as a Baptist church. Many of these others here, the Judaizers, the Gnostics, the Ebionites, the, the Monarchians, not to be mixed up with the Manichaeans uh, or the Arians, 
those were all heretical groups, had real problems. They, you could not be saved and believe what these people taught. But we have the monetists that were as early as 150 A.D. organized into churches in South Africa. Less than 100 years later, we have this group up here called the Donatists that appear, and their doctrine was actually a step cleaner. They did not believe in any extra-biblical revelation like the monetists did, but they'd still, as the monetists were very strong, taught that the final authority was the Scripture, the authority was in the local church, baptism was by immersion for believers only, in fact, one of the greatest heresies attributed to both the Monetists and the Donatists were that if you were not baptized in one of their churches, they didn't consider that baptism. Boy, that sounds mean-spirited, doesn't it? But it's part of our church constitution, not because the Monetists believed it, but because the authority comes through the Scripture, through the church, and if you don't have both, you don't have a proper biblical authority. And so now we're moving into the period of history that is very confusing. Constantine comes in and he begins holding church councils trying to figure out doctrine. It's interesting, this council of Chalcedon here is in the 400s after the death of, of Constantine and at the Council of, of Chalcedon, they finally make an amazing discovery that Jesus Christ is the very God in the flesh, that he is equal with the Father and the Son, and the doctrine of what we call the Trinity was finally recognized by the <clears throat> quote-unquote church. Now, let me ask you a question. If it took 425 years for the church to figure out who Jesus was, is there a slight possibility that just might not have been Jesus' church? Amen? And so, when you hear people, these are some of the key words that you're going to hear as you uh, listen to church history. They'll quote the Council of Chalcedon. They love to quote... Chalcedon, and then just a few years later, they loved to quote Augustine. Uh, I want to tell you, by the time the church figured out who Jesus was, they were already so wrong about everything else that you could not possibly find salvation in the mainline, quote-unquote, church of the Roman Empire as it's listed there. But many of these small groups here as the Monetists, the Donatists, and others through, uh, through the years carried on the truth. And now we are moving up into what we would call modern history, the fall of the Roman Empire, I mean medieval history, the fall of the Roman Empire. And let's go back up here and just pick up this part of the... Uh, of our, uh, um, time, uh, of our timeline here, we now have the Talmud. Now, what a Talmud is, 
is these are the traditional writing of the Jewish people. These are their commentaries on the historical commentaries of the Jewish people. The Mishnahs, which is the commentary on the Bible, had been in development for several centuries at this point. You'll notice that we are now removed almost 200 A.D. The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. And now we're coming up with the traditions and the patterns of belief that would make the Jewish religion different from the Bible and from anything else uh, that had ever been before it. You also notice that he is kind enough here to put in the greatest perverted manuscripts in all of history, the Codex Vaticanus, named for the Vatican Library, which it was housed, the Sinaiticus, where it was found on Mount Sinai, and the Alexandrius, uh, because it was found in Alexandria, Egypt. Now, I just want to challenge you and ask you to think about something. As we think of the history of the Bible, and these all date back to about 350 to 400 A.D., um, was the city of Rome the repository of all true Bible doctrine? No. Do we even know if there was a church on Mount Sinai in 400 A.D.? No, we don't. And certainly, Alexandria, Egypt, though it was a great center of learning, was not a place where the truth was really put forth. And so... These are, when you read in your notes, if you have one of those more modern Bibles or even a Bible with more modern notes, it will tell you the oldest and the best manuscripts. Now just take 30 seconds here and, and touch on this. The oldest and best manuscripts, the Codex Vaticanus was locked in the uh, uh, Vatican Library and was not allowed to be examined until modern times. There are places in the Vaticanus, it's missing entire portions of the Bible, entire books of the New Testament. It is one of the poorest quality manuscripts. It's just old. The Codex Sinaiticus was being cut up for kindling. It was actually in the garbage can at the monastery. A man named Tischendorf rescued part of it. Another part of it was shipped to Russia. And then this was put back in the British Library. Tischendorf came out with at least 14 editions of his New Testament. Each one was supposed to be the most perfect edition in the history of mankind to that date. And yet there is somewhere around 30 or 40,000 changes over his editions of the New Testament. I'd say he'd have a real problem getting anything accurate with all of those changes. And so we now come into the medieval ages, the Masoretic text. This is the Hebrew text from which our Bible is taken. These group of scribes uh, began in the Middle Ages and produced a line of manuscripts where we get our Hebrew New Testament from. 
Now you'll notice here that our majority text from where our New Testament comes, he brings all the way up here to almost 1200 A.D. Now here's the reason. The manuscripts that make up our text are newer manuscripts. But let me ask you a question. When you use a manuscript, what happens to it? It wears out. The reason why those three oldest and quote-unquote best, we call them the oldest and worst, are still in existence is because no one used them. If anyone had used them, they would have worn out and had to be recopied. The majority text, which makes up 95% of the manuscript evidence for our New Testament, is of a newer age manuscript simply because it was used. But if you want to study the history, it had to come from somewhere. We study the oldest Latin Bibles, their majority text. We study the oldest Syrian Bibles, their majority text. We study the oldest quotes that are recorded in history, they are majority text, hence the reason why we use the majority text Bible and the Masoretic text Bible. The only one that is in English today is the King James Bible. By the way, if you want to know what the difference between Tyndale's Bible and the King James Bible is, is several hundred years and just uh, uh, some uh, a little bit of a revision there. But there are no major differences between Tyndale's and the King James Bible. Now we come up to modern history, and we have these two fellows, Westcott and Hort, in the 1880s, who finally brought minority text Bibles into the English language. And uh, now we're going to come down here and we're going to try to get the history of the church very quickly and then we'll get this here. Okay, so we come here and, and we have our Donatist, Over here in about 200 to 400 A.D. Uh, let me get back there. I'm sorry. Somebody can see the map. There we go. Oh. There we go. Okay, we got our Donatus here. We come back over here. Some of these Albigenses were Baptists, some of them were not. The Waldensians were definitely Baptist in their doctrine and in their practice. Um, they were known as the people of the valley. Uh, one of their leaders was this fellow named Peter Waldo. About this time, we have the Inquisition beginning in its earliest forms and reaching its height after the Reformation there, or just before actually. And now we're going to have people persecuted for their faith. A persecuted church is not sitting down and writing out its entire history. Because if you stood up in the town square and said, I'm the preacher of the Anabaptist church here in the city of Antwerp, 
you would be immediately arrested, dragged to this town square and burned at the stake. So it's not that you're going to be sitting there writing your memoirs, and yet we have uh, many, many writings that are uh, dated back and have been preserved. And Okay, I'm sorry, I'm losing my mouse at this long distance. We now have the Reformation coming in. And by the way, our reformers did not believe in religious freedom. It wasn't until we have John Huss, who was definitely uh, a Baptistic in his belief, Savonarola. We have over here Hudson Taylor and Spurgeon, uh, which were Baptist. Uh, Apparently, the guy who put this chart together was a Methodist because he takes Wycliffe, Huss, Luther, and gets to Wesley, and that's where he ends. But, uh, uh, and so now we come up with all of the different churches. It's kind of interesting. He has the Baptists starting in the 1500s and lists the Anabaptists as a completely separate group. And... We're going to have to work on this. Does anybody see where my mouse is? Oh, I don't even have it on the screen. There we go. All right. And so now we come up to 2000, Y2K. Of course, everything was supposed to end at Y2K, and it did not. But um, we are still waiting for the events of the book of Revelation to begin to take place. We are looking for the rapture of the church, the signing of the peace treaty of the Antichrist with Israel. It's interesting how the entire world is focused on the Middle East. And of course... The interesting part of what is going on in the Middle East is everyone is looking for the 12th imam, I think it is. And don't, don't let that shake you. The, the Bible tells us of a person that is described very similar to this 12th imam who's going to solve problems, who's going to bring somewhat peace on the earth. Uh, the Bible calls him Antichrist. Nostradamus called him the star. And uh, so these people that have all of these other beliefs, don't, don't be afraid of them. The first thing the Bible tells us that the Antichrist is going to do is sign a peace treaty with Israel. We need peace in the Middle East, do we not? And the world thinks they're going to get it. In fact, this Antichrist guy, uh, I believe, and we'll, we'll work, on, work through this as we go through the book of Revelation. There's more about who the Antichrist type of person he is. We're not going to try to figure out his identity, all right? The Bible tells us not to worry about those things. But he is not going to necessarily be someone who simply gets up and says, Jesus Christ is the fake and I'm the real. The Bible says 
in, as Jesus was teaching in Matthew chapter 25, that if it were possible, he would deceive the very elect. Not that Jesus Christ didn't come. How was he going to deceive Peter, James, and John that Jesus didn't come? What he was going to do was, if it were possible for them to believe that this Antichrist is the true Christ, he said, except for the fact that God's going to take his church out. Let me tell you something. The Antichrist is going to be the greatest and most benevolent, probably the most conservative world leader there has ever been. He is going to be so good in his character and in his appearance that people are going to believe that he is not an ordinary man, but that he is Jesus returned. Aren't you glad Jesus is going to take his church out before all this happens? Now, I hope I didn't bore you tonight with this talk through history. Uh, but what we're trying to do, well, I had one anyway, amen. <laughs> what we're trying to do is we're trying to set the stage so that when we get to the book of Revelation, we know where we're coming from. God has allowed the passage of nearly 6,000 years of history. And by the way, don't get caught up. I remember, how many remember Dr. Wilson? Uh, I love Dr. Wilson. I, I respected him as, as few men. But uh, he got into this seven days of history and that Jesus would come back in the year 2000. He died in 2003. Uh, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. And you can divide up history into seven 1,000 days if you want, but you got a long stretch there from... Mount Sinai to John the Baptist with the law. And we got another long stretch from, John the, uh, from uh, John the Baptist or Pentecost, wherever you want to draw the line, up until we don't know when the rapture is. I always tell people when they talk about the end of the world, well, it could end a thousand and seven years from today. But that's as soon as the world could end. And, and we'll go through the prophetic timeline as we go through the book of Revelation. And one of the things that I want to do this time through the book of Revelation that we have not done hitherto is go back to Matthew 24 and 25. Go back to the book of Zechariah and many of these other places in the Old Testament where the prophecies are given of what is actually happening in the book of Revelation and trying to put our Bible together from Genesis to Revelation as we go through the book of Revelation. Take a little longer that way, but we got till Jesus comes back. Amen? Amen. And so, um, uh, again, I hope you don't mind me criticizing the time chart, but uh, it's wrong on a few things, and, and we don't worship Wesley or Calvin or any of the other reformers. They persecuted people who believed the Bible almost as much as the Catholics did before them because they were from the Catholic Church and they just repeated the same things that they were so afraid were going to happen to them, to others. It's interesting. Only people 
that have thoroughly believed in this Bible and this Bible alone, believed in this thing called religious freedom. And there was no place in the history of mankind where true religious freedom was practiced, except maybe, uh, I was going to say, except maybe in the jungles. But there was no religious freedom in the jungles. If you weren't part of the tribe, you got sacrificed, shall we say. That religious freedom was not part of human polity and government until a group of Virginia Baptists convinced Mr. Madison that they would adopt the Constitution of the United States if they put in a thing called the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments guaranteeing, or the first amendment, ten points guaranteeing religious and personal freedoms. Those ideas of personal freedom come from this book called the Bible. No other group in mankind is ever in history of mankind has ever trusted people to take care of themselves. Because only God can work in the heart of man and make him choose not what is best for himself, but what is best for his fellow man, what is best for society as whole. And that's a little phrase that the founding fathers of this country called the pursuit of happiness. It does not mean what makes me happy. Because if I went, if we went around the room, there would be different things that would make every person in here happy. And if we opened it up to society's whole, we'd have some really perverted people in here talking about some really evil and hurtful things that would make them happy. No, the pursuit of happiness is the freedom to determine one's own direction and own life in the light of society as a whole. It is called responsible living. The old English word is was on the subway to the building department and saw a guy wearing an Obama button. It was upside down and had a line drawn through it and it said dumb around the top. And I just looked at him and went, yeah, I like that. And uh, he started talking and I got to give him a track and witness just a little bit. Said, I wish we'd have seen a few more of those buttons in 2008. Uh, but uh, nobody was listening. But we came down to the issue. He was saying, we got to make him a one-term president, but I'm afraid, his, what his words were, I'm afraid the Republicans aren't going to offer a real candidate. And I said, I'm not, betting, I'm not betting against you. I said, they told us a few presidents ago the character doesn't matter. I said, this is what my business is and gave him a track. Amen? Amen. Character is the issue. And that's what we're after. The more you understand about this book, the less of a character you will be and the more of character you will have. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time element. We thank you that we do live in these last days and we're able to sit here and look at the panorama of history. And Lord, we can't find one contradiction with your word. 
Lord, there is no excuse for anyone not to believe what the Bible teaches. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to your word and to live for you in these last days. In Jesus' name we pray.